Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Today's episode is sponsored by Try Vegan, a meal delivery plan that is 100% heart-healthy, plant-based, made without gluten, oils, or refined sugar. All customers receive eight meals and two sides for only $100 plus $9.99 shipping. They offer an exciting new menu each week that are shipped out on Mondays. Based in New Jersey, Try Vegan delivers north to Vermont, south to Maryland, West of Pennsylvania includes all major cities such as New York and Philly. There's no contractor commitment and you all, my audience, can save 25% off your first order. Promo code capital L, capital Y, capital T, capital Y, yoga. That's lit yoga. Website is tryveganmealprep.com. Vince is a friend of mine. He is an amazing human being and I have this myself. This saves me time and energy, and I get these delicious, delicious homemade meals delivered right to my doorstep. So try vegan yourself. Good movement, and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a lit yoga podcast which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through safer and smarter movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Today is Friday with Friends, and I have a lovely, very new friend, Alexandra Solomon. Alexandra is a professor at Northwestern. She is a licensed psychologist and author of two books, Loving Bravely and Taking Sexy Back, and she's a mother of two teenagers. So we have a lot in common right there. Welcome to the podcast, Alexandra. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's so great to um, have new people that I've been introduced through friends. And so one of our friends, one of her best friend is friends with, um, or sisters with my friend and, and we found each other that way. But we also have this great connection of Northwestern where my daughter is going to be going to the year after next. So let's backtrack a little bit. How did you get on, on this path that you're on? You're a professor and then you've gone and written these books about sexuality. Um, where did your interests begin? Oh my gosh. Well, let's see. I I grew up wanting to be a medical doctor. That was my whole plan. And I remember when I went to University of Michigan and got very frustrated when the academic advisor was encouraging me to take a philosophy class, take a poli sci class. I was like, 
please stop talking. I'm only here to do my prereqs and get to medical school. And then I took a women's studies class and my world flipped upside down and I became fascinated by the study of gender and race and sexuality and relationships and um, and then dove more deeply into psychology and uh, and have never looked back. So being able to kind of wear all the hats that I wear from sitting with couples in my therapy office to training graduate students to do couples therapy, to teaching an undergraduate relationship class, to conversations like the one we're about to have. I just, I love that I, um, I'm never bored and I am a, I remain a constant student of relationship and sex and life and all of that. So it's been a, a career that has really nourished me over many years. That's amazing. Working with, like, how long have you been in the field now? Oh, 20, 20 years. I graduated, I got my PhD in 2000. So in those 20 years, would you say that the issues that you saw fa- that couples facing then are similar to how they are now? How has that changed? Oh, it's so interesting. I think I'm really proud of the ways in which the field has evolved. Like, I think, so I think there's like the, they mirror back and forth. The challenges the couples bring have, have changed the field and then the field has changed to kind of meet that. So I feel like as a field, couples therapy is far more expansive now around having fine-tuned critiques and understanding around gender and sexuality. You know, the field is called marriage and family therapy and was named that long before same-sex couples could get married in which subtly marital therapy kind of reinforced some gender roles and expectations. And um, certainly like sexual monogamy was not even available for conversation. It was completely assumed. Um, We were, the way that I was trained to work with couples around sex was like, I was told, just get the couple to stop arguing and then they'll be able to have sex again you don't ever need to talk directly about sex, basically. And I think our field has come much farther around just having deeper, richer, more nuanced understanding of the lives of couples versus um, just kind of like talk more nicely to each other. Because if it was that simple, you know, you could do a two-hour seminar on like healthy communication, everybody would be fine. And clearly that's not the case. Wow. So what do you think is the reason that sexuality is so... I mean, even in this psychology field, like from 20 years ago, um, it's so tiptoed around, you know, it's something that is been there since the dawn of civilization. I mean, that's how we've come to where we are now, but obviously it's not, it's not just about sex. And I think that's probably another thing I'd like to ask you about is like, if you define sexuality, how, what is your definition? Because if we went out and polled people on the street, I think the first thing they'd say is, you know, having sex and who you're attracted to, like who you mate with are, are kind of the way, the ideas of sexuality. So I guess my first question would be is, why do you think people are, um, even in your therapy world, not necessarily now, but as you said, you've been proud of how you evolved, but why has that been a topic that has not been um, kind of confronted head on? And in that vein, like what is the way you approach sexuality? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Well, in part, our ability. So, so the way that I tend to frame a conversation about sex is that it is both a behavior and a gateway into some of the deepest, most um, earnest questions that we have as human beings. Right? Do you see me? Do you value me? Am I okay? Are we okay? You know, what am what 
what do I, what do I crave? Am I entitled to pleasure? Like there are such rich questions that come up in that space of sexuality, but it's also a behavior. And I think we have, I think there's ways we've gotten so focused on the behavior, like are things working, right? Like, are we having orgasms? Is the penis staying erect? Like how often are you having sex? Like we've stayed at this very kind of like mechanical level and treated it sort of like just like a box to check off. And I think in some ways that's perhaps a defense against how powerfully evocative the deeper questions are. And just, you know, then you can go, I mean, we could go into the whole rabbit hole around religion, right? Like just those teachings around sex as sinful and it's okay here, but it's not okay here. So I don't know that any of us really grow up with a sense that like my sexual self is a part of who I am as a human. It is my connection to my passion, my aliveness, my body, my um, my ability to feel pleasure. We don't we don't grow up. We we kind of learn that sex is this thing over here, and it's this behavior, and you shouldn't be curious about it. And now it's okay to be here. You know, just so I think we sort of we start off right out the gate with a pretty fragmented sense of where our erotic self goes, you know, in the overall sense of who we are as people. Yeah. It's interesting. I, uh, when I was my, my husband's Jewish, I'm Christian. Neither one of us are identifying in those, either one of those slots now, but I wanted to give my kids some form of a little bit of that experience of going into a congregation. And, and so I looked into some versions of blending these and the Unitarian Universalist Church was it was in Princeton, especially is just this amazing place. Um, I don't attend there now, but when they were little or I did, and I even taught Sunday school and they were, to me, they were so revolutionary because part of their Sunday school teaching was the owls program, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which is our whole lives. And for anybody who doesn't know what that is, it's this, it's, I think Obama got slammed for it because he supported it. And then, you know, whoever was um, slamming him said, oh, he wants to teach sex to kindergartners. And it's like, well, no, that's really not, you're, that's not the point. The point is that sexuality is from the beginning, if it's approached in this, like we talk about this being a vagina, it's a penis. We don't give it a different name. You talk about how it is, is your body and nobody else should be touching it and you're responsible for it. But there's no shaming by giving it a, a name that like uh, like a cookie or whatever people call, I mean, people call them all kinds of weird names. I was never, I was always like, yeah, I mean, my dad's, my dad was a surgeon and I also wanted to go into med school and then eventually also stayed in the health path. But, you know, from the beginning, he was always, he never, he talked about sex openly. Uh, and so the point is when gathering of all the adults, all the parents to talk about what we were going to be teaching the kids so that they were not, caught off guard if kids came home and said, hey, you know, dad has a penis, mom has a vagina, a penis and a vagina come together and they make a baby. Blah, blah, blah. And everybody went around the room and it was like 95% of the people talking talked about how they never were, um, no one spoke about sex. If they spoke about it, it was absolutely in a shameful way. And it was, it was actually terrifying to see. And it's just like what you're talking about. So you're starting off already in the negative, already in this space, like this is shameful. Let's not talk about it. And then I'm sure, you know, like you said, you could talk for hours. I mean, months about this. This is, but all the layers of how your body represents your sexuality, how your feelings about your body, how your um, experiences are harbored and held in your body and in your 
And that is reflected in your expressiveness of sexuality. So I'm, what, I, there's so many things to uncover here, but where do you want to go? I know, where do you want to go with that? So, okay, first of all, let's just talk as a, as a woman that's been, I've been married almost 20 years. I think I read you'd been married 25 years or something. 22, yep. 22, 22. So you're a couple ahead. What do you, like, what is the advice you give for, I'm, I feel very happily married and, and a lot of it has to do with, uh, we're engaged with each other and it's not just, you know, five minutes in the bedroom in the dark. You know what I mean? It's like we're engaged throughout. So the ex- it's like a continuum of our relationship and that expressive um, of, of love. Is that something like if somebody were not feeling like they were having, they were really stuck in their marriage and, and it was really reflected in their sexuality, how, what, where do you start with that? Right. I think it's, well, I think just, just what you framed right there is really important that for, for you and your husband, all of the touch and all of the contact is all part of the same thing, right? There's the lovemaking is not somehow separate and apart from the rest of your relationship. And I think that especially for, so, you know, the, the research, the other reason that we're so far behind on understanding, especially women's sexuality is that we have been really quite willfully ignorant about women's sexuality for a long time, right? We just, you know, we had Freud talking about like the G-spot or, you know, the mature orgasm and the immature orgasm and all this kind of stuff, but we didn't have a full three-dimensional diagram of the clitoris until 20 years ago. So it's like, we've, wow. we've like kind of kept, yeah, we've kind of kept our eyes closed and not wanted to really understand women's bodies, women's pleasure, women's orgasms. And so it's also like that makes so much sense and that so many of us in our long-term relationships struggle around desire. So when you look at a large population of women, especially women our age and stage in life, about half of us are struggling with low sexual desire. And so all of that stuff, the early shame, the not understanding our bodies, if I don't know how to bring myself to orgasm, how can I expect my partner to bring me to orgasm? So and if sex doesn't feel kind of naturally reinforcing, of course my desire is going to be compromised. But what you're highlighting, I think, is really important because one of the big constraints that I will hear about is oftentimes men maintain a really spontaneous desire. Like the idea that like, sure, I'll have sex. Like it doesn't really, you know, sort of like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm game. Or, and for a woman, she may have a bit more of response, what we call responsive desire, where she's not feeling actively horny, but if the climate is right, and if she's feeling aligned in her body and she's feeling not too stressed, she can be sort of like invited into that space. And so one of the ways that, that she can get invited in that space is by having lots of touch throughout the day right? Where she's sort of being reminded, oh yeah, I I do live in this body and that touch does feel good. But here's the catch is, is sometimes what happens is communication breaks down. And so when he comes up behind her and, you know, whatever, cups her booty in the kitchen, what her brain does is it goes, oh God, he wants it. And then now I feel pressured and do, are we going to? And it feels like a Rather than feeling like an invitation, it feels like a tap, tap, tap. Like, are you ready now? Is it going to happen now? So it's so it's really important for couples. And we know that couples who are able to talk about their sex lives enjoy their sex lives more. And so a friend of mine, Dr. Steven Snyder, wrote this beautiful book called Love Worth Making. And he calls that simmering. What you and your husband do, he would call simmering, which is just that you have lots of touch. It's not going to go anywhere. It's like a two-minute makeout in the kitchen. It's not going to go anywhere, but it just keeps everybody engaged. And I think that's, I'm often talking to couples about reframing that because sometimes touch erodes to the point where 
she, for straight couples, she perceives any touch from him as being like, a, do you want it now? Are we doing it now? And then that can really kind of amplify like that polarization of the lower desire partner and the higher desire partner. Yeah. And what I've, I've heard, and I mean, I, it's not like I've all never felt this, but I think what can happen is it's natural to, if you are lacking some of that, um, frequent touching is when it does happen, there's like resentment, like, oh, now you want to pay attention to me. Like now, because you want something. And then there, there comes all this like under the surface dialogue of, of, you know, resentment. And I'm going to hold, I'm going to hold back and it can, it, which is again, that that's really erosive right there. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And it, you know, the way that I want us to relate to our resentment is to treat it as a cue, right? To any of our, any of our emotions, they are cues. They are little internal red flags that are asking for our attention and resentment, especially if we're talking about longer term marriages, resentment is a big one. It's just like, I'm, I'm the, the resentment is living in my body. I'm the one feeling it, but it has an important message for the two of us to understand together listen, I'm feeling this way. I'm feeling really shut down. I'm feeling really like I kind of want to like tense up when you're near me. And that's a problem for us. Let's talk about what's like, what am I holding for us? What am I not asking for that I need right now? And especially in this pandemic where many of the natural rhythms of our marriages have gotten shot to hell, you know, that that's, that, that again, I think sometimes if we feel resentment, we feel like resentment takes us more out of connection and we get more shut down. But then the more shut down we are, the more the distance grows, the more the disengagement grows. So treating that as a cue of like, what's going on? What am I needing to ask for that I'm not asking for? Okay. So imagine, I'm sure you have ha- done this many times, but imagine you have a room full of couples and you're going to give them three things that they need to work on to uh, enhance their marriage and their sexuality together and apart. Like, what would those three things be? Okay, so, well... I know, it's like, well, I got a lot of tools here, Laura. You're making me... <laughs> <laughs> That's good. What I was just thinking about one of the last events I did before we went into quarantine was this really fun event where we spent with a bunch of couples and we spent a lot of time talking about scheduling sex and the pros and cons. So I would encourage couples to at least have a conversation about scheduling sex because, and I say that because one of the common, one of the most common sexual problems, especially for longer term monogamous couples is a desire discrepancy, which makes sense. It's unrealistic to think that we're both going to want the same thing at the same time, all of the time. And so scheduling sex can sometimes for some couples, depending on how they approach it, it can be a really nice neutralizer. Like we just like, much like you have, you know, you teach yoga at 9am. So you just, you're on your mat and you know, at 9am on Saturday morning, whether you, you don't have to think about it because it's just what you're doing. You're just practicing it. And sometimes if couples know, listen, Wednesday night, it's happening. I was going to say Wednesday night, fly to the Concord. It's like, there's, have you heard that? Yeah. It's Wednesday yeah. night. You know what that means? Oh, you have to watch this for everybody out there. Fly to the Concords, watch Wednesday night, because that becomes like a fun little, like it's Wednesday night. You know what that means? You get off your t-shirt and you put on your fancy t-shirt, you know, it's like this oh, whole like, funny oh. song. So yeah, like now it's like my husband always is like, you know what tonight is, you know, it's just, then it's fun and it's funny and it is, it's like scheduled, but it's like a fun thing too. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Sometimes the resistance is like, oh my God, we're, are we that lame that we have to schedule sex? 
And then of course that's going to, of course it's going to go south if you do it that way. But if it's like, we get to do this and it we do it because we value this and that this nourishes us and we deserve this, we deserve pleasure and play and escape. Then it becomes right. As you're saying, something kind of flirty and fun and valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it can be, and it be, can be part of all the scheduling. Like I, we try and schedule, which also sounds like, well, well, why do you need to schedule it? Well, you just knew like 15 to 20 minutes where we connect at some point during the day. And, and we've differed on the day, you know, like the times, cause it does where we like talk about like that, whatever has, you know, it's usually something to do with the kids. So it doesn't like all of our conversations have to do with the kids or all of our conversations, or we just neglect it, but we've got like 15 to 20 minutes where we're kind of connecting about like, what is in front of us right now that is, that needs attention, you know, and it might not be anything, but that's, you know, our attempt. And we don't always do it well, by the way. It's like, I'm usually the one that drops the ball, but fortunately my husband's really good about that. Okay. So one would be schedule sex and don't be, yeah, great. I love that. I think another one would be if you, for, for those, for women, especially if, if she doesn't, if she feels like her only experience of her sexuality is with her partner and she's either not having orgasms or she's faking orgasms to really like take time to kind of step away and explore it doesn't have to be like masturbation right off the bat. It could just be sort of mindful touch and just like getting connected to her body. Um, but understand, I think it's really important. Like I, I do a lot of um, talking to and teaching, you know, young women, emerging adult women. And I, I think about this time, this pandemic time when people are in the dating world and they kind of can't, you know, they can't be dating the way and they can't be hooking up. I was, I just imagine a bunch of empowered women emerging from the quarantine, like knowing exactly how to give themselves orgasm and they're being grounded in their bodies and in their sexualities. And so I think, I think for those of us who've entered our marriages, maybe in our twenties and maybe got stuck in some kind of not great habits around allowing sex to not be particularly pleasurable, pleasurable for us, that can be one of the biggest breakthroughs for couples is to really heal that part of their relationship. If they've let it, if they've had, you know, years of erotic neglect. Hmm. Um, I like that term. Erotic yeah. So that would be like, make sure that, yeah, I, I think that, that again, that's really that willingness to be honest, you know, and say, Hey, like I actually haven't been, you know, like it, whether it's a hetero or homosexual um, relationship, it's like, hey, I haven't getting, been getting fulfilled in the same way. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that conversation doesn't, I think sometimes what silences us is a fear of hurting our partner. But the conversation would be, the intention would be like, I love us and I value us. And I wonder what might be possible for us. Like what, where haven't we gone in our sexual relationship? And how might that serve us if we if we devoted some more time, read a book, listened to a podcast, saw a sex therapist, went to a retreat to really like invest some time. I think that, I think especially investing in something specific around sexuality can feel especially frightening, but, but <laughs> to be frightened together is an incredibly actually intimacy producing experience. Yeah. So, so wouldn't it be fun to have a yoga sexuality couple retreat? <laughs> Right. Like I'm just thinking about it. Like I was thinking about how fun it would be to go into sexual, like a, like a retreat for intimacy. And then I thought, my gosh, it would be great to teach yoga. And then like, cause, cause again, I think yoga is such a, um, because it's so intentional. It's not like you couldn't get this with running or other forms of movement, but uh, yoga is really, really trying to bring you more inward 
It is being, it is not trying to like zone out so you can like burn calories. It really is trying to explore the the nuances of your inner self through this external machine. And that, that has a, a big part in how we feel about ourselves, you know? Um, okay. So we're going to, we're going to talk about that later. I think everybody, I think especially, just, I think for men, that's really vital, right? I, I talk a lot with men about how men's entire, like men have this entire huge expansive body, right? This, um, all of this like skin, all this terrain, but men's sexuality gets so focused on the penis. And so I can imagine that yoga where where men are attending to all the parts of their body, what are my fingers doing now? What are my ankles doing right now? Right? Like just waking up all those parts of the body can be incredibly healing and nourishing for um for a man as well. So so for men, it's so for women it's oftentimes allowing themselves permission to pleasure. And for men, oftentimes the healing is around letting go of the of the very narrow focus on performance and erection and ejaculation at just the right time, not too early, not taking too long. Da, 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 da. Um, and so I imagine that a yoga practice also helps so much with that, right? Just getting in touch with the full, the fullness of the body. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So we'll put that on our agenda. Okay. So now you have one more to come up with. These are great. I love these. I hope everybody's worth taking notes. Yeah. I think my third one would be just couples therapy early and often, really a commitment to, um, you know, we are so willing to hire a yoga instructor or a nutritionist or a consultant on this, or, you know, we are willing to ask for help and seek guidance in lots of domains in our lives. And I am perpetually saddened off. Well, I'm, I'm, I tend to get very sad when a couple comes to me and it's clear that this has been kind of knocking around for a long time. And it's oftentimes not until one person is pretty close to having their hand on the phone to call a divorce lawyer that they're going to come to me. And it's very, very hard. It's not impossible to come back from the edge like that, but my goodness, it is, um, I think it reflects these very romanticized notions of love and marriage that we grow up with. And, and so I think that there are, we've done a nice job of reducing the stigma on individual therapy and, um, and mental health in general. But I think there still remains some stigma around couples therapy and, um, some shame that if we need help with our marriage, that we're somehow doomed or something's wrong with us, or we shouldn't need to, or a fear, a fear that the therapist is going to you know, judge me or um, blame everything on me. And a good couples therapist, of course, is not going to do that. So my third one would be couples therapy early and often. I think early and often is great. I mean, I know that, you know, I, I also had those same, like just not being unsure, like, oh my gosh, do we need, and it wasn't until actually really our biggest tension has been with raising children, which of course that makes sense because you're two individuals with a different background coming together with different ideas about what what should be done and and different experiences of your own um, life as being parented. And then you're bringing that into your parenting. It was when my daughter was coming into her teenage years, you know, things that I saw as like, oh, she's just, this is, this is her, this is, you know, I, I understood it at a different level. I, this is her like <sighs> purging whatever is bothering her. It's not her being disrespectful. Like, so I would say, listen to like, understand the message more than what's coming out. And my, my husband was much more like, what's happened? You know, this seems really, and I said, you know, we should see somebody because that we need a third party to help us figure out where we can come together more on our understanding of how to parent her best. Because 
you know, n- nobody's going to benefit in that, in that triad of, I think this, he thinks this, and then she's there. And it was so incredibly helpful to, and a lot of what we learned is just like, pause and listen, pause and listen. And, you know, early on in our marriage, we did the the Myers-Briggs thing, which I know people have mixed views about, but my minister who didn't marry us, but had, did some like pre-wedding stuff. He said, I want you to take this only because I want you to see some things are very much wired. It's you are different people. So you're not going to, the point is you're not going to change that person. Like, and if you can listen from a place that is not about you being right or sticking to your and it was just so powerful. I always came back to like, okay, yeah. Like whenever we'd had different differing things, I would think about that. And fortunately, he's a very good communicator, probably more, more so in some ways than I am. But I think the point is early is great. And I think more people should, should look at it. Like you, you know, you go to the dentist for your teeth, you brush your teeth every day, you know, you move your body. You want it, you know, you would, t- you would do anything for the people that really matter. And this is somebody who matters probably the most, you know? And so doing the work needs to be done and, it, and and we need help with it because it's our, I mean, some of us, it is our first marriage, you know? So it's like, and if, if it's your second or third, you need it too. It's just, you need that help from an expert. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Right. Just to, to learn to, I mean, I love what you're saying also about like part of what you learned early on before you were even married was, was how to think about the differences between the two of you, because otherwise differences can feel very frightening. And it's very easy to project that our, our way, our perception, our lens is the right way. And then from that space, judge our partner. And now we're off to the races and it's me versus you and um, versus like, holding on to this kind of beautiful irony that happens again and again, that, um, that our partners, you know, can kind of show us different ways of viewing something and bring different assets to the table and different perspectives and different kinds of balance. But, but unless we have a way of thinking about it and holding on to it and, you know, what I, so I, I just finished up this semester long course at Northwestern that, this was our 20th year teaching it called Marriage 101. And that's really what we spend the entire course doing is, is unpacking how we bring, whether we like it or not, we bring all of our stuff from childhood um, into our relationships, right? So the roles we play, the roles we needed to play when we were kids and our families growing up to survive, to fit in, to belong, to have our needs met, all of those we bring in in really complicated and not always conscious ways in our intimate relationships. And so it's not bad that that happens, but we, we need to have a way of thinking about and imagining how our little girl stuff, our little boy stuff is getting activated in the moment so that it gives us some different moves and, and creates opportunities, in fact, for healing rather than, you know, rewounding. Yeah, it's through the dynamic of a relationship that we can really unpack it and heal. You know, it's, it's, I think that that's where individual therapy is important for some stuff, but to, for, for all the stuff to really come up to surface, it's, it's, I'm sure you would, it's in it, it's in the dynamic of a relationship. It's so beautiful. I mean, some of my most treasured moments as a couples therapist are when one partner and I are bearing witness to their spouse's, you know, pain. And we're like really sitting, like understanding the root, like the origin story of why this person behaves in this way. And feel so raw in this moment and, and bearing witness to that, like in, I mean, that's like, like, right. I can be a great empathic listener, but to have their spouse bear witness to that, that is like, 
you know, I get chills even saying it. Like that's mightier than anything I can ever, you know, I can be like, I see you, I celebrate you, but had their spouse be like, holy shit, you are a survivor. I see it. I get it. I understand it. I want to respond differently than what you experienced when you were little. Like that's, that's incredibly powerful. Oh, that is, that is so powerful. So speaking of littler, because you have two teens, I have two teens. When you are talking about sexuality with teens, what are, like with your own kids, how, what is, does it come up naturally? Do you deliberately sit down and have a couple of talks? Like how, how have you navigated that? Yeah. I mean, we've <laughs> making the choice to write a book about sex and give a TED talk about sex. Like I kind of brought that right into <laughs> our home. I'm sure you've seen sex ed on Netflix. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I haven't gotten through all of it. I can't, I started it and I never, I have to go back and, and binge that one. Cause yeah, it is, you know, um, I think it will change as our kids relation as their sort of like lived experience with relationships changes, but uh, we just have, we, you know, we've always, we've just, we've normalized curiosity. We've made sure I've always, we've had a general rule of like, please talk to us before you Google anything. You know, I really wanted to, or I really have, and we've had talks about pornography and it's, I don't take a, you know, a, a like porn is bad and evil and not, you know, you're naughty, but I've said that you deserve, both of you deserve to, you know, understand sexuality, like from your own imagination, from your own self, rather than kind of flooding yourself. I hear the saddest stories with my Northwestern students about, you know, being, um, it's just like some of my male students were telling me this quarter about, you know, being 12 year olds in their rooms by themselves, you know, looking at this hardcore, well, you know, mainstream porn that now is, you know, really hardcore, whatever you find on Pornhub and just having nowhere, like no way of framing it, right? No lens through which to filter it. And it makes me feel so sad. So I've tried really, I have tried to encourage both of our teens to just hold off on that and like let themselves kind of have a framework before that is, you know, layered in. Yeah, I think so. You know, a lot of times it is like I initiate the conversation and they will, they do the teen thing of like, oh my God, mom, really? (laughs) But that's, I know that like, that's like, that's the shtick, right? Like I have to say that part and then they, you know, grumble and then I say it and, and I know that it, and I know that it gets in. And when I'm talking to parents, that's what I say is like, they, you know, they may roll their eyes and they may, but they, but it sinks in and it matters. And the research shows that it matters. And the college students I teach say that it matters. And they come to appreciate later on that their parents were, were willing to be open books and advocates and allies and, and that, that that matters. So that's what I've tried to, what we've tried to do with our kids. Yeah, I think that's great. Same here. And, you know, I've, I, this is where I probably have been more traditional. It's like, I'll start the conversation with my son who's 15 and he just gets like, mom. And I just, I'm like, okay, you need to talk to him. Make, make sure you talk to him and like how he needs, you know, like obviously they should both, uh, I talked to both of them about the treatment of themselves and other people. But uh, I think that, I think I don't know if it's in the air, but I think I'm particularly raw about the treatment of women by men and the language and things like that. So, like you, I don't. I'm not. However, he t- will look at things. I just want to make sure that it's from the perspective of that. This is not, um, you know, misogynistic. It's not women. You, you you have to be aware of the way you speak about women. Um, the people that you surround yourself with. 
And so that's, you know, from the woman, I think it is important for him to hear that. But then I also think it's extra important for him to hear it from my husband as well. Yeah. So it is, it is like, it isn't, it's only awkward because I see he gets like, (laughs) (laughs) I'm fine. I'm going right in there. I'm like saying, Hey, Listen, if we are, if your friends start watching porn, he's like, Mom, right? Please stop, please stop. Yeah, because I picked him up from camp a couple of years ago, and he was, and um, he said, you know, everybody in my cabin was at like talking about porn and asked me if I had watched it, and I said no, and he's like, why are they watching porn? I was like, oh my god, he's thirteen. Yeah. Like this is I can't I, like I couldn't even imagine. And now I know that 13 is not even the youngest, you know? Right. That's the average age is 13 for boys. So that means. Yeah, it is not. So I. Yeah, it is. I think, I think that parents are on more, we, our generation of parents are on a very steep learning curve because we are the ones raising the generation of kids who could have, like my husband will tell like hilarious, you know, this, there's like the most old fashioned stories now of like trying to watch, you know, scrambled Showtime when, you know, as a kid, Cinemax. Skinemax, right. I know. I'm like, listen, I know. I know, right? That's what, it, that was around, right? And that was like, that was like basically what's on, you know, late, like 8 p.m. shows now. I mean, it's That's so. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. So it is, so it's, it's a lot on, and, and, and as parents, if, you know, like as your, as your group at church was, you know, saying like, like parent, we didn't, if, if we didn't receive healthy sex education. We're trying to transform our inheritance and have a different kind of legacy with our kids. But it's not just having the talk. It's also having the talk and, t- and porn literacy and, you know, gender expansive, um, inclusive conversations. Like it is a very, very um, steep learning curve for parents. And there are great resources that are available, but it's, we're on our own because schools aren't doing it. And very few of our religious institutions, except for the Unitarians are doing it. So it really is that extra burden is on us as parents to be talking about porn and, you know, what you're saying about consent. My favorite story is a gentleman at a talk I was giving, the wife approached me after a talk I was giving. And she said, do you know, when our son headed off to college, he Uh, my husband gave our son this book called She Comes First, which is a very famous by Ian Kerner. It's an entire book about about female orgasm and how to give a woman orgasm. And he gave it to the son before college. And he said, listen, when you go to campus, I suspect you're going to be hooking up. And what you need to understand is like, you're going to be fine no matter what. Your job is to make sure that she feels really good sexually with you. And I was like, okay, where is this husband? I need to meet him. Like he is a trailblazer, you know, it was the United States. (laughs) Beautiful. Right. Right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Well, and I think a lot of it, um, to, to kind of hook it back all around with what we're both interested in wellness and overall wellness. And, and I mean, we, I definitely need to have you back on because I do want to talk about body identity and, and, there's so much to unpack there, but I think it really, again, comes down to like, if we're open, if we feel more empowered in our bodies, in our um, willingness to, to talk, engage, whether it's as a partner, as a parent, as a child, I, I think that our, our own sexuality is, is amplified and improved. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you. I'm going to have you back because I do want to talk about body identity and all that stuff. But this was wonderful. <laughs> this is a great start. I love it. Thank oh, you so much. So, um, Alexandra, real quickly, if people are looking for you, where can they find you? Do you have a website? 
Um, yeah. Can you just give all those that info out? Sure. So my website is dralexandrosolomon.com and there you can have find links to both of the books, Loving Bravely and Taking Sexy Back, as well as social media. So I'm active on Instagram um, and on Facebook and those links are on the website. And then I have a newsletter that keeps people up to date on different... I'm doing a lot of webinars, obviously, these days because face-to-face stuff is impossible, but um, webinars and e-courses and different kinds of online offerings. Amazing. Amazing. Let's everybody go out and get that because we, we all need to be, because um, uh, honestly, I believe, and I'm sure you can, uh, the, you can say more from the professional standpoint, but I think when, when we feel better about ourselves and our own sexuality, we're just nicer people and we just need kindness and love right now in the world. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me and everybody who's listening. Thank you so much. And as always, I'm pulling for you. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.